Welcome to Bush School Uncorked. This is our first episode. I'm Justin Bullock, and I'm here with Gregory Galls and Raymond Robertson, who will be our guests today. Uh, this podcast is the podcast of the Bush School of Government and Public Service, and we're going to be talking about a number of current issues. Today, we're talking about free trade agreements, along with some uh, other current issues in the news. Um, but welcome, gentlemen. Great to you. see you. So I thought we would start by talking with Raymond about the new trade agreement. Uh, and so um, not too long ago, what was it, the 1st of October, uh, the USMCA was agreed to by Canada and the U.S. and Mexico. So give us a little bit of background on this trade deal. I know it started out as a bilateral trade deal and then kind of towards the end Canada was worked in. So give us just a little bit of uh, background on the agreement. Sure. Thank you very much for having me today. I think it's important to go back to the original agreement, which was the United States-Canada Free Trade Agreement that we saw in the 80s. And it was actually this agreement between the United States and Canada that led to the creation of the North American Free Trade Agreement when they added Mexico. Back in 1994, that agreement went into effect. And since then, of course, it's been very controversial. There's been some people have argued that it's been really effective in increasing trade and investment. And there's been others that have called it the worst trade agreement ever. And it's been a political hot potato uh, for the last 30 or so, almost 30 years or so. And what the current president wanted to do was make it better, maybe rebrand it, and address some of the shortcomings. And that's what's brought us to where we are today. And so um, what's the evidence there then? So it has been a political hot button. Has it been good for the countries involved? What's the, I mean, I know in the past election, uh, President Trump was calling for uh, for reforming it and calling it the worst deal in history. And so where do, what's the evidence on the pros and cons of, of NAFTA? President Trump's claim that this is the worst trade agreement ever was really provocative and really evoked a lot of emotion, especially amongst the communities that felt that they had been hit adversely by NAFTA. But the academic evidence is not as supportive of that claim. The North American Free Trade Agreement was an agreement designed to increase both trade and investment. And if you look at the changes in trade and investment that occurred since NAFTA went into effect, it's been very successful. Both trade and investment have increased tremendously. At the same time, what we've seen is a restructuring of production within North America into what's known now as global value chains, where now the United States, for example, would produce parts and then send those parts to Mexico. Mexico would assemble the parts and re-export the finished products. And this type of integration has led to transformations within both countries, but that hasn't been painless. There's been a number of communities that have lost jobs in the United States, which then fed in to the anti-NAFTA rhetoric. And the job loss in particular, sort of going back to the mid-90s, I mean, is the evidence that free trade was what was ca causing harm to these communities? I know in the U.S., particularly in the Midwest, we were talking about the, the free trade agreements or what had sent production and manufacturing jobs to other countries. I mean, is that really where the job losses were coming from, or were there other factors at play? Economists who have tried to answer that question, which is a good one, Justin, have Thanks. found that most of the <laughs> loss of jobs, particularly in manufacturing, 
have come due to automation. So there's been a huge increase in productivity, and most people don't realize that manufacturing output output in the United States is actually up, even though employment's way down. And that's just a function of, of automation by and large. Of course, there's been a lot of other production shifting. The United States has lost a lot of labor-intensive types of jobs, not only to Mexico, but largely to China, for example. China is now the largest apparel producer. We used to make a lot of clothing here in the United States that we don't make anymore, and that's shifted to China, and there's no trade agreement there. So to make the argument that free trade agreements are responsible for job loss is somewhat of an exaggeration. Do they have, um, and I know you've done some some of your academic researches on this particularly as well, but what is what do the free trade agreements in general do for wages in both countries? And if it's not causing a significant job loss over that time period, is it doing anything noteworthy or particular to the wages in both countries, say United States and Mexico? Well, there's a number of ways to answer that question. And, you know, uh, there's always a call for the one-handed economist because the economists are always saying, well, on the other hand. Uh, but a couple ways to think about that. Number one, if you look at aggregate wage levels in the two countries, the hope of NAFTA was that NAFTA would close this very large gap in wages between Mexico and the United States. And it turns out that that gap has not closed at all. If anything, the gap is now a little bit wider 30 years later than it was before NAFTA. And that's a little bit of a puzzle. But on the other hand, we have seen very significant reductions in inequality in Mexico, which is exactly what is predicted by neoclassical trade theories. As Mexico specializes in sort of the lower end, uh, more labor-intensive manufacturing, that increases the demand for less skilled workers, and we've seen that their wages have gone up relative to the more skilled workers in Mexico and led to a reduction in inequality there. Of course, the flip thing happens in the United States where the reduction in demand for low-skilled workers lowers the wages of the least skilled in the United States and possibly contributes to widening inequality in this country. Interesting. So it depends a lot on whether it's high-skill or low-skill labor and relative to one another within that country and what they're specializing in for the impacts. It's pretty nuanced in that way. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And that's why it's important to understand the short term and the long term and the differences between average wages and measures of inequality. Well, you uh, touched on a few things there that uh, apply to what I understand some of the reasoning is for some of the changes in the, the new agreement. And so you mentioned kind of you mentioned the global supply chains, um, and I know that there's there's some provision about the percentage of parts for automobiles that will not be a part of tariffs or something as part of the agreement. And so I just I was interesting that you mentioned the global supply chain because here's a piece of it saying certain percentages the percentage I, I think change compared to the to the uh, to NAFTA is that right? Yeah, so one of the most talked about changes in the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, was the increase of what's known as domestic content requirements. This is the percentages that were established in NAFTA and in all trade agreements that determine how much of a product needs to be produced within the region to have it be called a NAFTA product, for example. How much of the production has to be done in North America to qualify for the lower NAFTA tariffs? One of the big issues in the renegotiation was raising the domestic content requirements in automobiles 
uh, from about, it was like 65% up to about 72% or something like that, which is a pretty significant increase uh, in terms of raising it to a much higher level. However, given that it was coming from a very high base already, it's not clear how much of an effect this will actually have. And another piece of it that I noticed uh, that you and I, you and I were actually talking about uh, a little earlier today is the wage requirements within the new uh, within the new agreement for for the same industry for automobile as well. Um, and so, does that how does that play in? I, I forget how much. I think it was at like thirteen or sixteen dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. How will that actually play out as a provision? What are the impacts well, of setting it at that, at that wage? That's a great question, and it's a great question because there's no real simple answer. The truth of the matter is, is that this wage requirement is unprecedented in trade agreements. The closest thing we have to this type of provision are what's called labor standards, which traditionally have meant that countries would agree to enforcing their own labor laws, their own minimum wages, but we've never actually seen a wage target per se in an agreement like this. It's further complicated by the fact that it, we don't really know how it would be enforced or exactly what the formula would be for calculating this wage. So is it possible then on the Mexican side to hire another engineer at $20, $30 an hour that would raise the average wages up to that level so that they could qualify? Does it mean that the Mexicans would then automate, right, in order to increase the productivity of their workers to hopefully just employ those engineers or more engineers coming out of Monterey? Uh, it's really unclear, and it's going to be very interesting to see how these are enforced going forward. What, um, what other pieces about the New Deal are noteworthy or interesting to you, or you expect if, if, if passed uh, or if approved in all three countries that would be significantly different or have a significant impact uh, different from NAFTA? Well, there were a number of other contentious issues. Number one was the dispute resolution mechanism, which Canada and the United States uh, fought over uh, quite, quite extensively. Mexico and the United States had agreed to get rid of it, and that was uh, uh, basically a, a no-go with Canada. Canada said we have to have that, and eventually Canada won out. So now we have the dispute resolution mechanism is back in there. That's been important because Canada's used it a number of times against the United States anti-dumping measures. Another one has been to update the agreement to incorporate uh, e-commerce, update intellectual property rights, uh, which was an important step. But overall, I think if you take a step back and you look at the overall agreement and compare it side by side with NAFTA, most of these changes are pretty cosmetic. There's, there's not a fundamental reworking of the agreement and probably not something that uh, justifies a new name. We'll see as we go forward. But those evil uh, Canadian dairy farmers get it in the neck, right? Because Boy, I now, tell you. now America's farmers can sell milk into uh, into the Canadian market, and that that's going to have a major economic impact, right? That seems pretty unlikely, and I can see <laughs> that our, our our listeners unfortunately can't see the smirk uh, on <laughs> Professor Gauze's face uh, because it's a lot of hyperbole. Actually, I mean the changes in the Canadian. Uh, tariffs will help farmers a little bit, but farmers actually are struggling with 
U.S. laws, uh, U.S. restrictions on the dairy market domestically, and that's a much bigger issue for them. Having the basically incremental or very small increase in access to the Canadian market probably won't make that much of a difference to U.S. dairy farmers. U.S. dairy farmers, by the way, are among many sets of farmers in the United States, whether it's cattle or uh, soy or a number, that have been really suffering from the increase in tariffs uh, that the president has imposed, and then the retaliation that's come from other countries. There's farmers, for example, in Minnesota who had specifically targeted their grains uh, for China that are now unable to sell those, and it's causing a lot of disruption among farmers. So they're having a very tough time right now. Hmm. It's all part of making America great again. That's so, what we hear. There has, <laughs> to, there, has to be some, there has to be some sacrifice. Let me let me ask a more serious question. The, uh, some of the commentary on on the new trade agreement uh, said that it was a lot of it was directed at China indirectly. Right? That that there were clauses in it that said that if either Canada or Mexico make an agreement with a non market economy, that the United States can immediately leave the arrangements. There were. Clauses in the agreement about currency manipulation, which really isn't a factor in Canada because the, the, the Canadian dollar floats and, and doesn't seem to be a serious factor with the, with the peso, but that uh, some analysts said was, was a shot across about China, that, uh, that this was setting the standard for how the Chinese, if the Chinese wanted to trade with the United States, how the, the limitations that would be put on their ability uh, to use currency policies to affect their economy. So do you think that, that all of the sturm und drang around this and the threats against Canada that the president uh, leveled really were directed at Beijing? You know, uh, that's a great point, uh, Greg. And I gotta tell you that that is a very serious thing to think about. I think uh, I'm going to offer a different perspective on a lot of those provisions. It turns out that a lot of the provisions in the rest of the agreement beyond what we talked about, including the issues that you brought up, basically were lifted straight from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the Trans-Pacific, the TPP agreement, which the president had left, was very much designed as a way to contain China. It was designed to try and bring China into the modern trading regime, the Western point of view of it anyway. But it, but it kept China – I mean the original TPP membership didn't include China, right? Well, there, well that's there, exactly right. But the idea was to isolate China by right. getting all the other neighboring countries that China trades with yep. to agree to this set of rules so that China would then modernize, if we may use that term, and try and change their rules in order to become in line with the way we envision trade. So what happened was Trump came in and he said, you know, I don't like TPP because that was something of the Obama administration. Uh, the Obama administration was negotiating, so we're going to get out of that. And then basically realized that China was going to be contained through this agreement and that we're trying to bring provisions from that into our other agreements because those things actually turned out to be quite valuable from the point of view of containing China, of course. Yes. Right. Uh this is something that I, I think we might get into in the roundtable as well, but it wasn't just President Trump who was against TPP. All three of the leading presidential candidates in 2016 vowed to take the United States out of TPP. President Trump vowed that and did it. Bernie Sanders, who gave an unexpectedly strong run on the Democratic side for the nomination, 
is vehemently, was vehemently opposed to TPP, uh, much as President Trump, was also opposed to NAFTA, much as President Trump. In fact, the Sanders uh, uh, rhetoric on, on trade agreements is very similar to the Trump one. Yeah. And even Mrs. Clinton, uh, I think reluctantly came around and publicly said she would withdraw the U.S. from the TPP, even though she was Secretary of State when she when, when TPP was negotiated. So it does bespeak a, a, a sense in public opinion, or a sense among po politicians who want to appeal to public opinion, that trade is bad, that trade is a loser for the United States. Where did that come from? Well, that's another great question. And if I may reshape it just a little bit, I think there was definitely a very deep current of anti-trade agreement sentiment that people believed that the trade agreements were not doing well by the United States, whether it was in Korea or Jordan or Mexico uh, or the TPP. So it wasn't necessarily so much the trade, maybe the trade was bad as a whole, as much as it was that these agreements were not being negotiated in ways that would help the American worker. And I think appealing to the American worker uh, was a very successful strategy that, that uh, Hillary Clinton eventually picked up on and eventually came around to that very late in the game. But I think that this new agreement, I think you hit the nail right on the head by pointing out that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were opposed to TPP, they're opposed to NAFTA, they have this anti-trade sentiment. Most people are not aware that the new NAFTA revision, the, the USMCA, uh, has Usmeka. Usmeka. <laughs> which I'm sure is rolling off the tongue of politicians <laughs> in Washington now, uh, actually has everything that organized labor wanted. They wanted the wage agreements. They wanted the heightened uh, domestic content requirements. They wanted the labor standards that were actually not the NAFTA side agreements, which, but they actually were updated through TPP. TPP had the most advanced labor standards of any of the U.S. agreements that we've had in the last uh, 20 years or so. And this is everything. And I think that it's going to be very interesting coming into Congress to see how the Republicans respond to this agreement, which in very, in very many ways is very much the product of democratic politics. So uh, the, the new agreement, uh, the U.S., Mexico, Canada, America trade agreement does have to go through Congress. Absolutely. And so uh, until that point, uh, NAFTA, or the agreement previously known no, as NAFTA, NAFTA. Is, is st still obtains. So there are some politics here, without a doubt. Uh, is it your understanding that, that the administration is going to bring up this new agreement in the lame duck session, or are they going to wait till the new Congress? I guess much of that will depend on what the new Congress looks like. I think, yes, everything that I've heard says that they're not going to be considering it until maybe February at the earliest, right? So that's so, the new Congress. Right. So. They're going to be bringing it up with the new Congress, and it won't be after the elections before the new Congress comes in. Right. So it won't be in the lame duck session. Correct. So how does all this kind of lead into the, the, the even bigger question? Well, not, not that it's the bigger question. I mean, America's biggest trading partners are North America. That's right. Right. right? Absolutely. But China... And China is is kind of next on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So, for an administration that has been uh, as vociferous in its, uh, shall we say, anti-trade rhetoric as the Trump administration, but one that needs to sustain economic uh, the, the economic boom that we're that that we're living in now, how does 
a trade agreement with China fit into that, do you think? A trade agreement with China? Well, I mean, that's that's going to be next on the agenda, right? The Trump administration wants to, to have a negotiation. The reason that they're they're putting these these tariffs on China is to bring them to the table, right? Well, may, yeah, sure. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. I think there's lots of other potential explanations for why they're imposing tariffs on China. I think that uh, we, as academics, have had a very difficult time explaining a lot of the decisions and actions of this administration. <laughs> Tell me and about we're it. Trying to find a reasonable explanation, and it's not always clear that there is one. So uh, I think pursuing an agreement with China would be uh, a very, very big step for a number of reasons. I think, uh, first of all, I think modern trade agreements, even the NAFTA, even going back to NAFTA, NAFTA was a thousand pages long. Right. And right. from an economist, I'm an economist, you're a political scientist, yeah. but you know, from an economist's point of view, how many pages do you need to save free trade? No right. tariffs, no right. quotas. If, right? it were, <laughs> if, it were, if it were really a free trade agreement, it would have been one page. One page. <laughs> you could have taken care of it. But the thing is that lawyers write these agreements and not economists. And, and not political scientists. And not political scientists, exactly. We'll blame so the lawyers. We can always blame the lawyers. <laughs> and the, the issue there is that they are very carefully specified rules and regulations for a large number of areas. And China has state-owned enterprises. They have the currency, as you mentioned before, and they have a whole, their range of issues is so long that even to initiate an agreement with China would take so long into the negotiation that it would, it would be unlikely to see it end by the time the Trump administration leaves office. So what currently governs our trade with China is the WTO, right? The World yes, Trade Organization. Yes, absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about what the difference between, say, a, a a trade agreement like the USMCA, the, the agreement previously known as NAFTA, how is that different from the, the, the more general rules in the, in the WTO? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, just starting with tariffs and working our way down, tariff levels are going to be a little bit lower. The, right now in the World Trade Organization, to be a member, you have to agree to give everybody else uh, the most favored nation status, which already commits you to a series of, of tariff reductions and relatively low tariffs. United States, you know, I think we're very proud of saying we have the most open markets in the world, right. and generally we have the lowest tariffs already. Uh, so until, really, until this administration, until this administration, exactly. Uh, so it really is about these other rules. So then, what do these particular agreements do for these other rules? They're going to negotiate things that are particular to country pairs, and in this case, it would open up the possibility of including currency manipulation. It opens up the possibility of dealing with Canada's. Uh, dairy, for example, right? It allows you to deal with things that are uh, bilateral in nature rather than uh, multilateral. The other advantage of the bilateral agreements or the trilateral or the regional trade agreements is that they are often considered to be uh, a way forward for trade negotiations. Unfortunately, the WTO has been really bogged down. Right. They, they haven't been able to make a lot of progress, and there's been a lot of uh, people I've known at the WTO who in secret, will throw up their hands and say, you know, it's just very frustrating on a day-to-day -day basis because it doesn't seem like we're making a lot of progress. And right. Well, it's been a, it's been a couple of decades <laughs> since there's been a major exactly a major agreement within the WTO framework. Exactly, and I think that that's the reason why, in particular, President Trump's strategy of pursuing bilateral agreements is a way, ironically, to move forward towards freer trade. Brought it all back home. Yeah. Do you, do you, I'll put this to maybe both of you, is part of the reason we're not making more progress in free trade is just a, 
uh, I mean, other than sort of entrenched interests, it also seems like there's just a losing of faith in markets and free trade. I mean, we were just talking about how in the last U.S. election, all of the major candidates were coming out against the TPP, um, and at least at least Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump were both pretty uh, had elements that were fairly anti-market. Um, and so is some of this just a culmination of distrust of markets and distrust of free trade broadly, maybe? Well, you know, I, I think it's a little bit more subtle than that. I think if you go back to just neoclassical trade theory, I mean, back in the 50s, these two guys, Stolper and Samuelson, predicted that if we start trading with these low-wage countries – the wealthy people in the United States are going to gain and the poor people, the workers are going to lose. And that was a prediction way back from their, their seminal article, Protection of Real Wages. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that uh, this anti-trade current, and I think it's trade agreements, but it's also anti-trade, is coming from the fact that we've seen that play out. It's not that people aren't benefiting from trade. Corporations are doing great. CEOs are doing great. I would even argue that the more educated closer to the elites have been doing quite well mm -hmm. but you get this the bottom half 60 percent you know the the production workers they have not seen increases in real wages right and so is trade the culprit probably not the culprit is it one of the culprits it probably is one of the culprits mm -hmm. and i think that that's been uh realized coming out more and more and i think a big issue that people have not anticipated and that I think deserves a lot of attention from policymakers is the fact that trade induces all this reshuffling within a country. You know, you see some regions gain and some regions lose. And the thing that we've learned now in the last 10 years, having done a lot of research on this topic, is people hate to move and people don't want to move and they don't want to leave their communities. And so they don't. And when they don't, the wages just keep dropping and their housing prices keep dropping and their assets sort of evaporate. Whereas if they moved, uh, maybe things wouldn't be so bad. They might be able to find a job or something. But they don't like to move, which tells us that the cost to people from this adjustment is astronomical. That the cost in terms of lost wages or whatever would have to be it's just huge. And that's a real big policy issue. Yeah. I, I don't think that we can discount the effect of the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. I mean, I think we're seeing the the waves of, of secondary and tertiary effects of the financial crisis in the politics of Europe. We're seeing it, the mm -hmm. politics here in the United States. Uh, and I, I, it is to some extent a loss of confidence in, in what had been the, the verities of, of our, of our economic boom. Uh, and, and I think trade has, has suffered not because people have done, you know, uh, the, the, the average voter has done the careful, uh, econometric analysis of what actually is the reason that that you know unemployment went up in the Midwest. I think it it it's a very convenient scapegoat. Uh, it's a very convenient uh, you know silver bullet single cause explanation that polit politicians on both sides of the aisle have been talking about for for ages. But I also think that it it. It bespeaks something about the power of the people and the interest groups that pushed for freer, freer, freer trade over the decades, that, that perhaps their political clout, and I wouldn't say it's just the, the, manu uh, the, the, the you know, 
big business in the United States. It's also the agricultural community. There's no, uh -huh. there's no sector of the American economy uh -huh. that's more tied to international trade than the agricultural sector, uh -huh. which is, it, it makes it so puzzling, the political uh, results of 2016 when all of these agricultural states, uh, and particularly rural areas in, in states with mixed economies were, were so strongly supportive of President Trump, who, who was, you know, extremely open about the fact that he thought tariffs were a yeah. great thing, that he was going to use, he was going to use American economic power uh, against our traditional trading partners and allies to try to open them up uh, more in his perspective. I, I, find, I find the politics of this fascinating. We'll have to see how it works out in the 2018 election, but it's, it, it, it's, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance you know, among American voters on this, I think. I agree with you 100%. I think that's an excellent point about how it's a convenient scapegoat. Trade is a convenient scapegoat because that way you can blame the other. You can point somewhere else and you don't have to look inside. You don't have to look at education. You don't have to look at how people are voting. You don't have to look at your own decisions. Right. It's China's fault that you right. guys are suffering. It's not anything right. we're doing here. We don't have to change, except right. we have to change them. And I think that you're, I, I agree with you 100%. And the, the cognitive dissonance is an excellent point, I think, because... They were expecting this. This is exactly what Trump said he would do. Right. And people in those communities are now saying, we're so glad, you know, we're, we're saying we're not voting our economic interests. We're sacrificing for the good of the country by supporting the president. And they still support the president, even though it's costing them money and it's hurting their own livelihoods because exactly. they're taking the sacrifice for the country. Exactly. the way they view it. Exactly. I think that there's one other issue maybe before we, we transition out of this that, that – uh, I don't think it came up so much in the new trade agreement, but the, the nature of trade has changed dramatically, even, even since the negotiation of NAFTA, right? The, the intellectual property issues, uh, E-trade, uh, kind of intangibles that get traded across borders, which have, have always been there. I mean, trade and services has always been a major element of the American economy. I always like to tell my students that you know, all of the all of the students in this classroom who are not American citizens are uh, come up as an export on America's trade balance because the tuition that 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 they pay to to Texas A and M University uh, comes up on our, our our national accounts as an export of a service. So the whole idea of what you need to to manage in a trade agreement has changed. Do we have any sense from the USMCA of how the United States and other countries are looking at those at those uh, those new areas? Yeah, that's another great question. I think you're exactly right that this really gave an opportunity the renegotiation gave a great opportunity for countries to revisit a lot of these issues and come up with some new ideas and they targeted exactly as you suggested. They targeted the e-commerce, they looked at services, they looked at uh, the intellectual property provisions. And, and so this was a great opportunity to update uh, those provisions. And I think that that's a really important point to be made. Right. And I, and I, I think that, that, as you said, this was necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, NAFTA yeah. was, a, was a, a treaty that was basically negotiated by the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, yes. the namesake <laughs> of the Bush School, yes. and ratified by the Clinton administration, not the presumptive Hillary Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton administration. <laughs> so we're talking about back, you know, 
uh, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth <laughs> in the late 80s and early 90s when all of this was done. And, and you know, can you imagine using a, a, an electronic device that you bought in the late 1980s now? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the nature of trade has changed. So it's not as if these agreements don't need updating, right? It's a question of to what end. No, that's exactly right. And one of the other kind of fun provisions or interesting provisions in the new agreement was that we're going to revisit it again in a number of years and right. try and continuously update it and make sure that we're up to date and, and current because technology is changing so quickly and it's a good idea to update that. So that's another positive uh, result, I think, that comes out of the negotiations. Is there anything about the changing nature of labor, for example? I mean, not just a changing nature of trade, but how... Uh, uh, different types of work people are doing, the different types of work contracts. Is there anything? I, mean, I know that we talked about there being, uh, you know, the wage amount for the automobile industry. But in any of these discussions, is are they starting to have conversations not just about the changing nature of trade, but how labor is done? Yeah, I think that it's very important to emphasize the increased demand for skills. I mean, there's been other research that suggested that the opening up to trade with Mexico, for example, through NAFTA, actually increased the demand for skill in both of these countries, which is another interpretation, right? And so uh, not a lot of uh, subsequent work's been done on that, right? So I think it's very interesting to try and figure out if uh, people are changing their fields of study, if you're getting more engineers, if more young people are going into that field. I think that's a, that's a really interesting area for research. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We'll uh, take a little break and open up to the, some broader discussion topics. We're back with uh, what will become a recurring feature of the Bush School on Court podcast. We're going to take the issues that we talked about specifically with our special guest, Professor Raymond Robertson, broaden them a bit to the general political atmosphere and, and things on the political agenda, and then let that conversation go for a bit and, uh, and see what's on everybody's mind, uh, reacting to the headlines of the day. So I, what strikes me, uh, broadening out our, our, our discussion of, of trade and the Trump administration's approach to trade, is that this administration has, has captured what I think is a, a, an unsavory but accurate notion about bargaining, which is it's a heck of a lot more effective to threaten and bully your friends than it is to threaten and bully your enemies. Because your friends need you more, your allies need you more. It's easier for, for President Trump to go to Canada and Mexico, who are incredibly dependent on the American economy and access to the American market, and say, we're going to cut you off unless you do X, Y, and Z, and we don't care about you, and you're evil, and you've been cheating us forever. It's, it's a lot easier to say that than to do that with China, right? Which, which has a much more, if you will, equal relationship. It's not, you know, no, no economic relationship is completely equal, even though the president would like it to be so, right? Absolutely zero in the trade balance, right? Uh, uh, but Raymond, you're an economist. You're, you 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 know a little something about bargaining theory. Has President Trump's lizard brain kind of of, of set on something that really is true? Yeah, I think that you raise a, a really wonderful point, and it's wonderful for a number of reasons. I think number one, 
One of the issues that we're wrestling with in society today is this extreme polarization and the unwillingness of people to consider the other side and give any sort of credit to the other side, as it were. And so I think there's a lot of people maybe listening who are really anti-Trump and are not interested in giving Trump any credit whatsoever. But I think your point is, is that that might not be fair. I mean, there might actually be some method to this madness. And this theory about negotiating might actually provide a lot of light in terms of what's going on. I think it's very fair to point out that if Trump has any strengths at all, you've got a Liz bargaining as one of them. And he sees his strength as a negotiator, as a bargainer. And I think it would be very uh, short-sighted and unfair to say, well, he doesn't even make any sense when he's doing this kind of bargaining. I mean, it makes sense. He probably does know what he's doing. Although, it's probably based on what you're saying. Right. Although it doesn't seem like he got a great deal from the Canadians, you know, some concessions. Yeah. But but things that, that the Canadians had already given in TPP. So, but I, I, I think about this more in, in terms of China, right? Uh, Justin, you, you're... You're a public administration scholar. Uh, you know a little bit about bargaining as well. I mean, do these kinds of tactics, kind of the, the, the threat, the, you know, we're going to walk away, we're going to, you're going to really suffer if you cross us. Does that work with people who are roughly your equals in power? That's a good question. I think, you, you know, it's certainly to your point, earlier, it works better when you're holding the power cards. Um, and, and I think it works less well with equals. And, and to that degree, I mean, Trump's taken a different line. Across. I mean, I was just thinking about how, in some ways, I was going to disagree with you and say that, you know, uh, Trump was maybe able to bully Mexico and Canada into forging a new deal. Even if there wasn't a lot of changes made, the point was in some ways showing that he could do it and rename it so that it was his. And the way he did that in lots of ways was by attacking Canada and Mexico. Um, and the stuff with China, I um, I mean, he's definitely taking both tax to China, right? I mean, he's tried to use strong rhetoric with China and sort of a maybe a bullying fashion at least with just rhetoric doesn't seem to work in the same kind of way and maybe that's because the power imbalance isn't there it's kind of like you know, picking on your little brother versus your dad kind right. of thing right um and so the, and part of it is I don't think um, from what I can understand China doesn't seem intimidated in the same way because they know they're closer to to an equal and so the the tact of then just raising tariffs seems to be an interesting departure from just rhetoric to, okay, trying to figure out what is it that, that, that can get China's attention. And as a, a quote unquote, non-market economy, maybe by messing with tariffs and messing with things that w wouldn't be as flexible in other places, maybe the administration believes that's a better way. But I mean, I think to, to your point, you can't bully equals in the same way. And you can't even bully people who are willing to to play dirtier, I think, in right. some ways. I mean, Mexico and Canada may be trying to play by some more decorum. You try to bully other, uh, Kim Jong-un, for example, maybe that's less effective. I mean, I don't know. Um, well, one thing that economic theory, and you asked about that in particular, yeah. it does tell us is that bargaining games have 
very different, if not opposite outcomes, depending on the time horizon. Right. So if you have a very short one-shot game, you're going to get one result. But if you play the game repeatedly, you get another result entirely. So this bullying, right, I think is an effective short-term kind of strategy. Right. In the long run, though, you're sowing seeds of discontent that often just come back to bite you later. Right. You, you, you uh, threw out a little bit of, of erudition in the first part of the, of the pod when you talked about the, the, the Stokler-Samuelson. Theory. Exactly, yes. And I think here we have to talk about iterated games versus right. one-shot mm -hmm. games. Exactly. Right? If you're, exactly if right. you're going to be playing with the same character uh, across the table from you numerous times, you might actually want to build up a relationship of trust and not right. you know, just squeeze them until they pop. That's right. As if you would if you just were having a one-shot deal. And, and to me, the, the, the case where that, that's kind of in between the, the, the weakness of Mexico and Canada and kind of having to, to, to submit, as it were, to pressure. And China, which is uh, maybe not a pure competitor politically or economically, but certainly getting there, is the European Union, mm. right? And, and, and here, point. President Trump is, is gone after uh, traditional American allies because almost every member of the EU is also a member of NATO. And the president has, has devalued NATO and criticized NATO. And it seems like he really wants to break up the EU because he wants to do individual trade agreements. We know that he's told Theresa May in Britain, you know, get out, get out of the EU and, and come and do a bilateral trade agreement with us. Uh, and I think that, that it's his negotiating strategy to kind of break the EU apart so he can actually bully individual members, whereas the EU as a whole is an economy as big as the United States. Yeah, divide and conquer. Basically. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that was had me thinking about exactly that, Raymond, which was it, it also weakens, and this is what I've had recently, about trying to understand why you would attack so many allies. And they didn't think about it from, like, the trade angle, but you have less... Um, external to your country accountability if your allies are usually the ones that would pro uh, provide some external shaming mm -hmm. or external, hey, we all play by these rules, you know, respect these types of situations, behave this way. And if you, as, a, as the leader of the U.S., if you spend a lot of time attacking those norms in part by attacking your, uh, your friends and your allies... I kind of think about it from this kind of political norm. So then there's no one strong enough or no one that you feel obligated enough when they say, hey, quit doing that. Right. They all hate you already anyways. Right. And so the uh, the external accountability of that, I think it, it feels like it's kind of like softening up an opponent by punching them in the gut repeatedly over and over. Right. I, I, I think that there were presidents in the past who would have felt that criticism from the European allies <laughs> – would have been something that would be a negative for them. Uh, but I don't think that President Trump thinks that way. But it's also interesting, and this changes the topic a bit, that when he's dealing with countries that aren't allies, uh, whether it's North Korea once he, once he got his meeting with Kim Jong-un, or whether it's Saudi Arabia now in the wake of the, the killing of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in, uh, in the Turkish consulate, uh, the president seems to bend over backwards to avoid using those kinds of bullying tactics. 
right? I mean, uh, he, he criticized Kim Jong-un, and then once Kim Jong-un came to the table, uh, the president has been extremely complimentary to him. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Saudis in this current imbroglio, uh, the president has bent over backwards not to criticize them, and in fact has, has kind of anticipated their talking points on a number of these things. So I, I find that, that, that his negotiating strategy is tough to, to figure out. I mean, it's not like North Korea is the equal of the United States, it's not like Saudi Arabia doesn't need the United States. But, you know, you, 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 pick, on, you pick on Canada and Mexico, but you, you uh, put on the kid gloves when dealing with North Korea and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, it's classic, classic kind of bullying technique is knowing who you can bully and who you can't, um, for sure. It, uh, the stuff in Saudi Arabia, I think, is a nice uh, transition since we have a Middle Eastern expert here with us. That would be me. And that would be that. Would, it's, it's not me or Raymond, is it? Um, and and I, you know, there's a there's a clip of as the president's learning about um, the case as it's evolving, and then kind of in lifetime says essentially there's this amount in trade dollars, and then there's this one life, and so. He kind of makes it explicitly about trade and that in no way does he want to do anything to endanger the amount of money uh, being exchanged between the uh, between U.S. And, and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, that's in some interesting or I guess troubling, you know, symbols or signals to uh, how the. Uh, what's acceptable on the national state, on the international stage, in terms of behavior, for to be able to participate in commerce, right? And in some ways, there's is a point there that there's 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 you have to figure out what the value of one life is, and we do that in a lot of contexts. But this is much more symbolic than that. This is you know uh, kind of deliberately flaunting in some ways uh, the disregard for the killing of journalists, which fits awkwardly into a, uh, a narrative of a general line of attack on, on, uh, on journalists. And, and the rules of diplomacy. I mean, this, this killing took place in a, in a diplomatic, in diplomatic space, in a, in a, in a Saudi consulate, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, immune from the, from the law enforcement regulations of the country in which it, 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 it sits. But in exchange for that, you're supposed to obey certain rules. Mm -hmm. And one of them is you don't kill people in the middle of your consulate. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's an interesting conundrum here. I mean, I, I think that the president deal is looking at Saudi Arabia and, and Raymond should weigh in on this because oil is so central to the world economy. Uh, he's looking at Saudi Arabia in a couple of, uh, of ways. One of which is we need the Saudis if we're going to pressure Iran. Mm -hmm. and, and the president's policy uh, in the Middle East is very much about pressuring Iran. Uh, the, the, the other thing, and how do the Saudis fit into that? Well, the Saudis are the ones who, if, if you can limit the amount of oil that people buy from Iran by threatening them with secondary sanctions if they buy from Iran, they're going to need that oil from somewhere else. And it's the Saudis who have the capacity to actually raise their oil production in the short term. And so if you're going to sanction Saudi oil, as some people in Congress have, have talked to, you're, you're undercutting your Iran strategy. 
but I, I'm a little cynical about this. I mean, I, I think that, that it's a shame that the president uh, hasn't been more forthright in condemning the Saudis for violating the basic norms of, of diplomatic interchange and how they, you know, in the use of their diplomatic institutions in foreign countries. And for this, this brazen killing of, of, of someone who was no threat to this regime at all, none. Uh, but, you know, I can't imagine three or four years from now that the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States will be significantly different than it was before the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And, I, and to some extent, I think President Trump is just getting there faster than other people. Uh, it, it's not nice and it's not pretty. And it, it might uh, forfeit our chance to have a more serious talk with the Saudis about what the limits are. Uh, I, I mean, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has been on a losing streak in terms of foreign policy. Uh, since he since he became crown prince in 2017, uh, the boycott of Qatar hasn't worked. The war in Yemen completely bogged down. Right, the kid, the, the in effect, the kidnapping of of the uh, of the Lebanese prime minister and getting him to resign in a speech from from Riyadh back in November of last year completely backfired. So uh, it's not as if as if the the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in Ankh in uh, Istanbul is uh, kind of a, a, a strange deviation from what was a very prudent and successful foreign policy. And I think that this should be an occasion for, uh, for the United States to talk to the Saudis very seriously about the, the rules of the game and, and the limits of their power. And I'll get off my soapbox on that one. So can we do without Saudi oil, Raymond? I actually think that the situation today is a lot different than it was 20 years ago or even you know, 40, 45 years ago uh, in the 1970s where we were highly dependent on Middle Eastern oil. I think the situation's changed dramatically. I think now uh, with the fracking and there's been a huge increase in the U.S. supply of oil and natural gas, and at the same time, there's been this big push for alternative energy sources, and the president's been a big fan of coal. So I think all of these different uh, avenues suggest that our dependence upon Saudi oil in, in 2018-2019 is, is, if not greatly reduced, entirely puzzling, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, but, but it's never been our reliance on Saudi oil, right? I mean, it's the world's reliance on Saudi oil. Well, we, we've never been a big importer of Saudi oil. And when we began our strategic relationship with them, we, we, we didn't import oil from anybody. We were exporting oil back in the 40s and 50s. And now we're exporting oil again. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But, but the the world oil market is a single market, right? And so disruptions anywhere, the collapse of the Venezuelan government and, and collapse of, of of oil production in Venezuela is going to drive up prices everywhere. And our neighbors here in Texas, who are fracking Brazos County where we live, aren't going to give us a discount on the price just because we're their neighbors. If uh, if the world price of oil is well, it's going up. The price of oil here is going to go up. Right. But if I may be somewhat uh, unusual in the next couple of comments, I think number one is that as a resident of Texas, a rising price of oil ain't bad. so bad. Ain't so bad. <laughs> it's so bad for us. I mean, a lot of the states. The rest, of, the rest of you, the rest of you people listening out there who don't live in Texas, sorry. <laughs> 
Right. So, so on the one hand, right. But, but I think on the other hand, like a more serious issue, again, this is only going to get me now that I've alienated everyone outside of Texas, <laughs> right? alienated okay. everyone inside of Texas. Yeah. And that is the rising prices of oil make alternatives much more attractive, right? right and so right. It's, the rising price of oil and these disruptions in the longer run might not actually be so bad. But wouldn't it be a lot better if we just put a tax on this to raise the price of it so the Saudis didn't get the money? Sure. So we kept it at home? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean... Let's in, talk in, carbon in, tax. Right. I mean, I think I, that the, I, I, I'm, I'm the not, recent Nobel yeah. Prize winning economist has been a advocate for the carbon tax and says this is one of the ways, if not the best way, to try and address global warming and a lot of these threats. And if you look at Stephen Hawking, one of his last mm-hmm. pronouncements was, aside from the genetic manipulation to make superhumans, <laughs> like yeah. the number two thing <laughs> was, uh, we got to be really concerned about climate change. And I know and, that it's not so popular everywhere, but... But this is in, in you know just days after we're, we're recording this just days after the United Nations came out with a with a uh, a quite drastic assessment of the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for somebody as old as me, I always figured that that I'd be dead and I wouldn't have to worry about it. But if you're talking about you know effects showing up in the next ten years, well, we've had several hurricanes already that are larger in scope and. and frequency and I think that there's lots of evidence that suggests we're already experiencing lots of the preliminary effects of it. Coral reefs are disappearing and so on. Those poor polar bears are having a hard time. You know, I think there's lots of evidence. The the North Pole was open to shipping, right? And I mean, there's been lots of evidence. And so I think that uh, maybe a disruption of Saudi oil, I'm not, I'm not so worried about you know, breaking the world's I, reliance on Saudi I would, oil. I would much rather do it through taxes I, no, than, I agree. Than, I, through, I, than through political upheaval and short-term spikes in prices and things yes. like that. No, 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 I, absolutely. I'm not saying that. But I'm just no. saying I'm less worried about these kinds of disruptions. I mean, in the global market, I mean, I just, I don't have as much sympathy as perhaps you've cultivated over the years. Well, I, I mean... Uh, I, I don't know if I'm sympathetic to uh, Saudi Arabia in particular, but living in Texas, we're sympathetic to anybody who produces oil. <laughs> That's definitely true. <laughs> and, and, That's definitely true. And, and, and we appreciate you if you're an oil producer. Yeah, and we, we certainly appreciate you if you're an oil producer. We definitely appreciate you. Uh, I think that, that that might be a nice wrap yeah. for, for today's roundtable. Uh, we want to thank our hosts here at Downtown Uncorked in Bryan, Texas. You might even have heard one of the trains that goes through Bryan. Bryan is the county seat of Brazos County. And for uh, decades, a major uh, cotton port, as it were, Mm -hmm. the farmers in the Brazos Valley brought their cotton into into, into Bryan and loaded it up on the trains to take it to the world. And so uh, we always enjoy it when the trains come through Bryan because it reminds us of our history down here. So we... We thank Downtown Uncorked for their hospitality and hosting us. And uh, we thank our colleague, Professor Raymond Robertson, from the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University for sharing his expertise with us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Justin, you want to say goodbye? I guess so, yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a great first episode, so I'm looking forward to doing more of them. The hope is... Um, after we have this one published, a week or two following, we'll have another uh, episode published as well. Same format, and definitely feel free to share on your social media platforms or uh, anywhere that you uh, think it will help people listen, and thanks for paying attention today.